Welcome to Asset Yield, the podcast series of Kinsteller's Asset Solutions Sector, where we speak with principal investors, advisors, and funders in the world of non-performing and non-core assets of all classes, bringing you frontline market insights in real time. Welcome to Kinsteller's podcast series. I'm delighted that you could join us between your far-flung adventures. I'm sure you've been very busy these past couple of weeks, moving from the kitchen to the living room to the bedroom. So how are you managing? Yeah, thanks for the invitation. So it's been very dynamic, challenging nonetheless. Indeed, indeed. I think we'll look back on these days and have good stories for our grandchildren. So let me start out by introducing you, or you introduce yourself and your title, and then we can jump into it. Yeah, again, thank you. My name is Karel Schmerak, and I'm the Group Director of Capital Markets and Transactions for EOS Holding. EOS Holding is one of the leading European investors and servicers of distressed receivables in all shapes or forms across 25 countries. Thank you, Karel. You yourself are based in Hamburg now, is that correct? More or less, yeah. Okay, and that's the headquarters of EOS. Yes. For all of our listeners, could you give a, a couple of words about EOS's kind of context and background, you know, with the auto group and so on, just to put it into a perspective for our audience? Yeah, EOS is actually an interesting company in terms of how it came about. So EOS Holding, as I said, is at the moment one of Europe's leading servicers and investors in distressed debt with its own balance sheet of about two and a half billion euro spread across various asset classes in 25 jurisdictions. The beginnings of EOS were, I would say, a bit more humble. It started out in the 70s as basically a spin-off of the accounts receivable of Otto Fazant, which at that time was one of the world's leading, if not the leading remote shopping businesses. Before Amazon came about, Otto was sort of a big mail order business and the accounts receivable at some point was spun off into a separate unit working for Otto mail order business then for other companies within the Otto group. At some point it started offering debt collection services on the market and basically since late 80s EOS has started purchasing portfolios first of consumer unsecured receivables from all sorts of originators and by now it invests in portfolios of all types of distressed debt in various jurisdictions secured unsecured consumer corporate you name it we do it compared with most of the other sort of larger players in the market we are 100% privately held so we are not traded on any stock exchange. We do not issue our own bonds or debt instruments. We are held ultimately by the Otto family and technically we are part of Otto Holding group of companies. Thank you. Could you say a little bit about your own role at EOS because you're obviously not working in 25 jurisdictions. In terms of what I personally do at EOS, I'm working with our board which consists of five board members, primarily focusing on Central and East Europe, but more recently, you know, also working on projects in Germany or being involved in Spanish projects. 
my job is really focused on the transaction side and the setting up of joint ventures with third-party investors in various constellations. Sometimes they're one-off joint ventures for one transaction. Sometimes it's a bit more systematic cooperation for a specific asset class in a single country or a group of countries. Actually, that's an area that I'd like to explore further with you. In a broad sense, let's call it BC and AC, before Corona and after Corona. In the period of BC, before Corona effectively closed down the world, maybe you can tell us a bit about some of the projects that AOS were involved in, in particular that you were working on. In terms of my personal focus, I tend to concentrate on secured receivables which have the distress element and which have real estate element. We've also looked at a couple of performing transactions of non-core receivable assets sold by banks or non-banking institutions. Those at the end, you know, we didn't quite get there on pricing. So, so far the focus has been, for me personally, distressed portfolios with real estate element, a couple of joint ventures with distressed debt investment funds Mm -hmm. in various jurisdictions. We've worked with international development institutions because of all the NDAs, we can't really name specific companies. You can name some jurisdictions though where you were quite active. Well, recently or before Corona, one of the very active markets for us has been Poland, where we've invested in a joint venture structure and on our own, sort of a mixture of both material amounts of capital. On our balance sheet, we've made a number of portfolio transactions, for example, in Croatia. We've acquired a secured mortgage portfolio, a fairly large one in Romania. We've bought a few portfolios in Bulgaria. We've been actually very active in Russia in the unsecured space. So basically anything between Poland, Bulgaria, all the way to Russia, anything in between, we've been actually quite busy. Also Hungary, there we bought on our own a fairly large consumer secured portfolio. So it is really a number of countries, but the ones with large investment volumes, I would say Romania, Hungary, Poland, those would probably be the largest ones. How has Corona affected the business? Because you've named a couple of jurisdictions that shut down, like you know the rest of the world, but in particular these. What has been the impact on your business? The first most immediate impact has been, I would say, fairly material drop in collection. Sorry, is this because of the central bank emergency measures, the payment and enforcement moratoria? I would say there's like two to three factors. One is the pure logistics, people not being able to go to work, to actually go to the call center, work courts, pending work for quarantine reasons. You know, so there's this, people don't get to work or the work gets slowed down, auctions get canceled, you know, stuff like this. Second is the impact of government moratoria, borrowers knowing that if they don't pay, nothing's going to happen because enforcement is suspended for several months. Another factor is that some people literally you know, don't have the money because they used to work at a hotel, in a bar, at a restaurant, and that job disappeared overnight, so they cannot pay because they don't get paid. It's a range of factors. So besides organizing your sock drawer and fixing the annoying drip in in the kitchen sink that's been going for three years, what are you doing with yourself these days? How are you managing your assets? 
on the one hand, the actual collections have dropped. On the other hand, there is demand for some of the assets that we hold and some investors who spent a lot of time diligencing and negotiating with us on specific transactions to buy single assets from our portfolio. They continue to be interested and they don't drop their pens completely. So we try to close as many of these transactions as we can. I think this is the focus looking at the back book, if you want. Mm -hmm. Second focus on top of looking at the back book and managing the existing investments and hel helping teams in the countries come up with strategies in the world, we are also actively looking at potential future transactions. What will be the geographies? Who will be the likely sellers? What will be the likely pricing? What is happening to the market? So this is the second big focus. You've raised a good point. The brave new world that awaits us when we all emerge from our sellers. The discussion about the secondary market is very interesting because even before Corona in the BC world, we saw starting trend for secondary sales. Hoist, for instance, one of your colleagues, competitors in the market, especially in Poland, had last year securitized part of its portfolio and unsold it. B2, another one of your competitors, particularly in the Croatian market, was selling parts of its portfolio. So do you see that as a very lively activity after the AC, after Corona? We will see. I think it's a potential space where transactions could happen. I think what we will face will be a big gap between the pricing expectation of the seller and the adjusted pricing expectation of the buyer. And I think in terms of you know secondary transactions or on sale of parts of a portfolio by investors who bought relatively shortly before Corona, the probability that they'll be able to sell at levels close to what they bought for after Corona is actually very low. So unless it's a liquidation sale or you know a distressed sale by someone, by an investor that just has to sell. With that exception, I don't see this realistically happening because people would have to take losses, which would be quite big in quite short period of time. So sellers that will be seeing, I think forced sellers who have to sell for regulatory reasons or because they're being liquidated. So this is tied to, there's a certain fluidity and uncertainty in the market anyway, even when we do crawl out of our sellers, it's highly unlikely that this virus will be gone. There's still the specter of it recurring in future waves. There's also going to be the drag on the government on various economies and so on, and a certain lack of stability. I guess also you're saying that, you know, for instance, if you had commercial properties that were fully leased in BC time, in AC time, it's not very clear whether those will stay 100% leased and whether, you know, there are, are future tenants in the event that certain leases are broken. That's a very relevant perspective, maybe yeah. with the caveat that you know, properties tended not to be fully leased in the first place in these NPL portfolios. And yeah. the question was, how long will it take to lease them up and what is the achievable rent? You know, now one thing we can say for sure is it will take longer to lease them up and the achievable rent most likely will be lower than it would have been at the end of last year. 
That's very interesting. And your comments actually bring me to my next thought. When you say pricing gap between the bid and the ask, it's almost like we're back in 2008 again. This was historically one of the biggest issues, especially in our neighborhood of Central and Eastern Europe, unrealistic pricing expectations. Does it feel like 2008 to you or is there some difference in the impact? I think it feels very similar in the sense of a you know shock to the market, crash of the stock market, everyone in a bit of a holding pattern, trying not to panic and seeing what's going to happen. So in that sense, it's very similar. I think another similarity is the impact this has on the market activity in that you know, the pricing gap opens and large transactions freeze for now. Our current situation feels to me different from 2008 is one, I see a much higher risk of inflation just because of the sheer amount of money central banks and governments are pouring into the economy to compensate for the drop in economic activity. The specter of inflation, I think, is much more present than it was back in 2008. And second, it feels like the core of the problem back in 2008 was the financial or the banking sector, which was the heart of the crisis. Today, it feels like the banking sector is part of the solution rather than the problem. You know, it feels like the core, the heart of the issue is somewhere else than it was back in 2008, which in a way makes it easier to handle because to my eyes, it's not as systemic as it was back in 2008. The financial architecture of the system is not decomposing, at least not at the moment. It was sort of melting back in 2008. For full disclosure, I have to say that we're both former bankers at a bulge bracket bank, and I rather like your new motto, the banking sector is the solution, not the problem. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You don't often hear that. What's interesting to me is that I fully agree with you. Obviously, the triggers are different, and whereas the whole financial sector imploded, last go around the financial sector at this time. Well, we don't know what will happen in a few months, but as we speak, the financial sector seems to be quite robust. But what was interesting is that out of the 2008 crisis, we had a very fertile time for transactions. I can't remember being as busy as I was, for instance, and you as well, I'm sure, You know, starting from about 2009. It went in phases. The first phase was banks basically doing triage with their top 100 corporates. And that involved a lot of deep restructuring, very hands-on, very time-intensive, resource-intensive work to keep their top 100 corporate clients afloat. And then following that, maybe about a year after, and not necessarily following, but overlapping it after about a year, came the entire portfolio business, uh, probably around 2010. It really kicked off where we saw very well-curated portfolios coming to market. And I guess that's when EOS really took off. Is that about the time when EOS went very heavily into secured transactions? Yeah, I think that's a precise summary. Yeah. And I guess that the next phase after that is uh, once the very well curated and very thought out portfolios go to market, you have the third phase, which is basically take it or leave it. Here it is. It's a mix, you know, do with it what you will. <laughs> and I think that's where we, we sort of were most recently. Now, what's interesting too, is that 
EOS, of course, are a main player, a major player in our market. But in general, I think it's fair to say that in the last, you know, one, two, maybe two to three years, maybe two years, there has not been such a lively portfolio market, at least in Central and Eastern Europe. We've kind of gone around the jurisdictions, you know, from Slovenia to Croatia to Romania. Poland was quite a solid economy, so they never had such a vibrant market. There was a lot of a fallout from get-back situations, but in general, it wasn't such a lively market. But pretty much the opportunities were slimming down in terms of portfolios. And what we were seeing, and I think EOS also were involved in this, was more fourth phase, maybe we could call it that, towards a sort of private equity approach, which is the acquisition of single names and a private equity turnaround of these single names, either through financial restructuring, operational restructuring, both. Because EOS and the other investors, you basically have the underwriting skills, you have the infrastructure in-house, so you can do this relatively easily. Do you want to talk about that a bit? I think you described the transitions in the market in the last decade actually quite well. My reading of what happened, exactly as you said, immediately after the 2008-2009 crisis, the immediate focus was on the largest borrowers, you know, the top 100 for each bank. Second big wave where I would call good quality portfolios just to make sure a bank actually transacts and can move some of the assets because the investor demand at that time was relatively limited. There wasn't that much capital available to buy and the capital could be very picky. So banks were trying to come up with product which was attractive to be able to realize a transaction. When the market got into full sweep, also weaker portfolios started trading, you know, investors gained more confidence, it became a more established market. So basically any type of portfolio could be transacted. There was a track record of workout, better sense in individual countries, how long stuff will take at courts, what type of real estate is worth, how much. So there was all of a sudden more capital, more knowledge in the market, more servicing infrastructure, and any type of portfolios started to get traded, pricing became more competitive to the point this market becoming relatively commoditized with quite technically experienced investors with strong partnerships, either with their own captive services or you know, services in the market. And it became de facto a commoditized market combined with decreasing supply of NPL portfolios as the bank balance sheets were gradually being cleaned. You know, the old stuff from 2008, 2009, 2010 has moved to the investors' balance sheets and the banks didn't have that much left. And combined with improving economy, there wasn't that much new stuff, new NPLs being created. So, you know, what we saw basically 2019 was in this sense the peak of the market with super competitive pricing because of one, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of capital, relatively transparent market, and two, limited supply because of the good economy and already cleaned up balance sheets of most of the banks in the region. And investors like ourselves started looking, okay, what other pockets are there in the market to place capital at more attractive returns? 
and these single name transactions, which were too small for a typical private equity house and did not really fit into the traditional NPL portfolio type of setup. That was one of the pockets where we have done actually a few interesting transactions in the region. Looking into the world after Corona, I think in a way, what you said about 2008 happening all over again and what is old is new. I think in a year, we will see again what we saw back in 2009, spike in supply of distressed debt, relative lack of capital and sort of the whole market history will possibly repeat itself, probably with some tweaks which are a bit difficult to predict at the moment what exactly they will be. But I think the basic curve will actually be the same like we saw over the last 10 years. It's interesting because you said that there's sort of a tightening of capital, although at the same time, as you pointed out, all governments are flooding the market with cash. So in a way, we don't have a slightly different situation to 2008, 2009. There was really very little government support, very little cash in the market. Whereas now I speak to a lot of investors who are saying, well, we're going to keep our powder dry, but we are liquid. And even EOS is privately held. And so I assume that you're in a similar situation. And there may be different products or different types of assets on the market. And and one of the things I'm thinking about, and I just wanted to run it by you, is uh, whether this is something that AOS would be looking at. There will be further bank consolidation in the market, as has already started over the last 10 years. I mean, there was huge bank consolidation following 2008. And we see already, I mean, Hoist, again, one of your colleagues slash competitors, and DDM has just bought uh, 10% of Adeco Bank. Hoist has a banking license. Is this something that EOS would be considering uh, becoming a player in the banking consolidation? And that would be not only buying entire banks, but perhaps buying certain desks or businesses off of banks. The simple answer is we would consider, but I think it's actually quite unlikely that we would transact an actual bank. Not so much because of you know the size or availability of capital as the capital group is you know a large private equity if you want in the very original sense a private family's equity type of company it has to do more with the regulatory aspects of owning a bank license which you know for our core business which is investing in distressed receivables is actually you know we don't need a banking license so to the extent we can avoid it you know, we prefer not to have it. The auto family actually had or still has a stake in a bank. As far as I'm informed, it may have changed recently, but you know, there was a bank in the auto group of companies. So far, we haven't needed our banking license within EOS. It's interesting to me because, uh, I mean, it's a, a sort of black humor, but uh, some of your colleagues slash competitors, for instance, are effectively creating their own portfolios. The large Polish servicer, for instance, Crook, uh, bought the UK payday lender, Wanga.com, last year. And it seemed to me that with DDM buying into Adico and Hoist having a banking license and, and basically doing origination, that in a way, they're almost creating a vertical integration. We not only service NPLs, but we also create them. 
these are all actually interesting examples because they're driven by very different considerations as far as I can see. You know, my understanding of the Hoist business model is that being a bank for them is a way to get access to cheap capital as they actually receive deposits from retail savers, if you want. So mm -hmm. they use the banking license in order to accept deposits, which allows them to invest in non-performing loans, but also in performing loans. And they're basically a bank with access to cheap capital. The DDM transaction, I understood, was driven more by an opportunistic, you know, pricing situation combined with lack of traditional non-performing NPL portfolio type of product on the market. So when DDM was looking where should they invest, you know, there wasn't that much of the typical NPL portfolio stuff. And this was sort of an opportunity sitting right next to what they would typically do. That's mm -hmm. my understanding without being in the detail of that particular transaction. That sounds about right. And and Wonka.com, I think, probably came out of the whole get back disaster in Poland, where basically the market was frozen for any other players for a number of years, at least one year, if not more than one year. Yeah. Uh, we're now starting to come out of lockdown gradually. As we were discussing FIFO, it's not just an accounting term, it's first in, first out. So where I'm sitting in Austria, we now have uh, garden centers and DIY stores open. Clearly, there are not enough women in the government here. Otherwise, the hair and nail salons would have opened first. There are other countries, of course, that are coming back into the market. Uh, in particular, of course, the first one into quarantine was China. We see that they are in the market again. Do you see China as being a player in your space? I would say it depends a bit on which direction, but so far I have not come across Chinese capital in European non-performing long. In the larger markets in Western Europe, I don't know if they were involved in anything in Ireland or Italy, but I have not heard of them. And in the opposite direction, us looking at the Chinese NPL market and potentially investing there, I think... We had enough to do with our balance sheet in our more you know, traditional markets where we've got track record and existing presence. And China has been a bit too exotic uh, to look at for now. And what about U.S. money? Do you see that money coming across? Yeah, I think there is you know, several American investors active in the region. In Greece, you know, there have been a few, I think Balbec has invested in Greece, which is basically a U.S. fund. PIMCO invested, you know, in Italy, in Greece. There are American players. My sense is they tend to focus on the larger markets, also given their size, that Cerberus, you know, is a very large private equity. PIMCO is a very sure. large private equity, so they need to go to markets with volume. Right, right. So our neighborhood of Central and Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe, you're thinking that it'll stay pretty much the same players. If I look at the last three years, you know, B2 has been a very active investor in the region. I have a question mark, you know, how active will they continue to be going yes. forward? 
Yes, the whole the whole market has a question mark. <laughs> well, this you know this may be one change in the landscape. Some investors will continue to be the same. Like I think EOS, you know, is here to stay at least for now. Will there be new investors coming into the market? We will see. I think one aspect is also the relative value play, you know, for someone who's got a pan-European investment mandate, they will need to make a decision, you know, do they go to Germany, do they go to France, do they go, you know, to Slovenia, do they go to Serbia, and it will be a relative pricing issue, and I can imagine a situation where pricing in the core European markets, like Germany, France, possibly Spain, will be so attractive that people will prefer these countries as investment destination and will not be willing to look at the Balkans, for example. Until the pricing in the big core countries becomes tighter again, which will drive the investors seeking high returns to more exotic destinations such as the Balkans. You raise a very interesting point because um, Greece and Italy have been sort of sucking capital out of our region in terms of investor capital out of our region for quite some time. These are huge markets with huge NPL portfolios, you know, with notional values of billions. One of the methods that that has been used to uh, transfer these portfolios on a large volume has been securitization. The securitizations work because they are government guaranteed. Uh, in Italy, you have the GAC, and in Greece, you have Hercules. Italy's economic situation is going to be pretty dire after this. They've been very hard hit by corona. And it'll be interesting to see if Italy can continue its securitization structure, whether the GAC government guarantees will still carry the same weight and credibility in the market and encourage investors. Uh, there may be, may be a shift. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I definitely agree. I think this is a big question mark, like how much will Italian state or government guarantee be worth six months from now? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a very relevant question. No one has an answer to at the moment, I'm afraid. Yeah, no, no, of course not. It's a, it's a very fluid situation and um, it could be a real dis market disruptor and could actually bring investors into Central and Eastern Europe as an alternative. In time of BC, before Corona, we were looking at uh, several jurisdictions in Central and Eastern Europe, obviously smaller than Italy and Greece, to create the similar structure, this uh, government guaranteed securitization. So it could be that if these jurisdictions are not as badly hit, they could actually have a market edge. Yeah, yeah. They certainly have the servicing infrastructure, which, you know, in some countries, for example, in Germany, because Germany has been doing so well for such a long time, there's not many servicing platforms left, not in the scale, you know, which will be needed post-corona. In this sense, you know, countries like Croatia, for example, probably have an advantage that mm -hmm. the servicing infrastructure is still large enough to catch the spike in volumes, which is forthcoming. Yeah, yeah. And Croatia in particular, 
being you know 90% of the country's uh, GDP is uh, is uh, tourism so they are going to be particularly hit by this crisis this has been very interesting very illuminating looking to the future Corelle it's been a pleasure I love picking your brain you are a wealth of information and a wealth of experience I call you the real estate guru it's great to get this information from an insider and just to hear your perspectives on the market, uh, on the past market, the current market, and the market to come. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot.